I shall officially start this. Okay, hi. Uh, hi everyone. Uh, this, uh, my name is Henry. I'm the founder of Philosophy of Life uh, together with my co-founder Justin. So um, we are here to talk about the ideas of uh, objectivism and, and how it applies to our daily life and current affairs. So the philosophy of life, we've been around since the beginning of uh, 2019. So we have our monthly meetups. Uh, and during the circuit breaker, this is our third virtual meetup. So what is uh, the philosophy of objectivism about? So it's a philosophy by this uh, philosopher called Anne Rand. So it touches on all the major branches of philosophy, namely uh, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and politics. So uh, metaphysics, which is the branch of philosophy that talks about reality. So uh, objectivism holds that uh, reality exists as an objective, absolute facts are facts, independent of your wishes, feelings, hopes. Um, epistemology, the branch of philosophy that talks about, that, that concerns itself with uh, how do you know stuff. So uh, objectivism holds that it is reason that is uh, man's only means of perceiving reality his only source of knowledge, his only means of survival. Ethics, which is today's topic, uh, is concerned itself of how a man should act. So objectivism holds that uh, every man is an end in himself. He's not a means to others, so he must live for his own sake. He must pursue his own rational self-interest. His own happiness is the highest purpose of his life. And in politics, uh, Objectivism advocates for laissez-faire capitalism. And it's a system where people deal with each other as equals, as equal traders under voluntary exchange. So this is a very, very short summary of uh, objectivism. And today we have uh, Dr. Dan Norton. So uh, Dr. Norton holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of California. And he, he devoted a YouTube channel called the, the Selfishness Project. So he devoted this channel to explore the ideas of uh, selfishness with, 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 with uh, everyone. And Rand taught that, and Rand taught that selfishness is a very important concept, but it's being misunderstood. And if we correctly understand what selfishness is, uh, there will be enormous benefit for the individual and for the world at whole. So, um, so without further introduction, this is Dr. Uh, Dan Norton, and please take it away. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Henry. And thank you, Justin, for inviting me. And thanks to all the rest of you for being here. Uh, let me see if I can get a, I have a slide presentation with some pictures on it, which I hope will help convey the content. So let me see if I can share my screen and get that slide presentation going. Just a moment. Okay. Okay. All right, I think you should be able to see it now. Uh, Henry, can you see the slide? Uh, yes, I can see the slide. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, then we are ready to begin. So I'm going to give about a 20-minute presentation, and then we'll do a Q&A after that. So I was told that I should structure this as a very beginning presentation, um, present it uh, without assuming any 
advanced knowledge of objectivism. Maybe some of you have heard of Ayn Rand and you have some interest in learning about her more. Uh, maybe you've read some of her novels or maybe not, but I'm just gonna give a very basic presentation about her ethics, in particular her ideas about selfishness. And maybe some of you will be motivated or interested to go out and actually read Ayn Rand for yourself. And if you are motivated to do that, that would be great. Um, she is a very controversial figure in the culture. She has some very radical ideas. And I think it's very important to read her works for yourself if you really want to understand what she's about. Because I think because she is so controversial, a lot of people who don't share her views, they present straw man or distorted kinds of presentations of her so I think you have to be really careful, uh, in particular with Ayn Rand's. If you really want to understand her view, read her own words. And that, that applies to my presentation as well. I'm going to give my best um, understanding of her ideas, but nothing compares to reading Ayn Rand herself. Okay, uh, any other preliminaries? No, I think that's it. So let me now get into the actual presentation of Ayn Rand's new idea of selfishness. So the first thing I want to do is contrast her idea of selfishness with selfishness as it's conventionally understood. So here we have a picture which is supposed to give one example of what a selfish person is often thought to be like. So when you hear somebody is selfish, you think he's, he exploits other people, he takes advantage of other people. Um, he tramples over other people's rights. And we have someone doing that here. This, let's say this is you here on the left. And then you've got some other people who are lying on the ground and you are threatening them with a gun. So this would be a kind of situation where a lot of people would look at the, the person, you in this case, and say, oh, you're being so selfish. You're exploiting these other people. Uh, you are sacrificing other people to yourself. That's the way Ayn Rand sometimes puts this idea. <clears throat> You're taking advantage of other people. This is a, a win-lose kind of relationship. If, you've, if we fill out this example a little more, maybe you're a, a mugger or a holdup person on the street and you wanna take some people's money uh, and you threaten them. You say, give me your money or I'm gonna shoot. Uh, when you do this, you are bringing about a win-lose kind of relationship. You win something, you get the money, and they're losing something. They lose the money, and maybe they're losing their lives as well. So it's a win-lose kind of relationship that attaches to the conventional understanding of selfishness. You win at somebody else's expense. Okay, now here's an opposite kind of relationship that selfishness is often contrasted with. So here, again, we have you on the left, and now the others are standing up and you are bowing down before them. You are being selfless. You are sacrificing yourself or you're being altruistic towards them. You are doing whatever they want. You're doing their bidding. Uh, this is often seen as the alternative to uh, selfishness where you are not sacrificing others to yourself. You're sacrificing yourself to others. And this is also a relationship that involves losing. At least one of the sides is losing and the other side is winning. 
So this is a commonly understood as the alternative, the only alternative to being selfish. Either you're selfish in that conventional sense we saw in the last slide, or you're selfless in this in this kind of relationship. And either either kind of relationship to other people involves somebody losing out. Somebody's getting sacrificed to somebody else. Okay. Now here's a third way of relating to other people where nobody is being sacrificed. You're dealing with other people as equals, neither as masters nor as slaves. So here we have you in the middle and you're joining hands with other people on either side of you. You are neither sacrificing yourself to others nor sacrificing others to yourself. And this is a win-win kind of relationship that you have with other people. And what would be an example of this? Well, for, let's say you go to the grocery store to buy some food. You give the grocery store some money and they give you some food in return. You're both winning from this transaction. You would rather have the money than the food and the grocery store would rather, uh, Sorry, the grocery store would ha rather have the money than the food. That's why they're selling it to you. And you would rather have the food than the money. That's why you're giving up uh, money to get the food. So it's a win-win transaction. You both come away from the interaction getting what you want. Okay, so this is the third way of relating to other people that Ayn Rand actually endorses and calls selfishness. Now, there's a... There's a nice quote from her novel, Atlas Shrugged, which captures this kind of way of relating to people. And I have that on the next slide. So this is what one of the main characters says. I won't say who it is in case you haven't read the book yet, but this is, this is uh, one of the main statements from the novel. I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. So here we have the idea of you're neither sacrificing yourself to others, nor sacrificing others to yourself. Okay, so what I wanna do next is cycle back to the original slide and add a little bit of complexity to it because it is a little more complex than I initially presented it. So when I initially showed this slide, I presented it as a win-lose kind of relationship, but that's only in the short run. If you actually consider the long run consequences of relating to other people in this kind of way, it's actually a lose-lose kind of relationship. So why would that be? Well, most obviously in this, in this kind of example where you're you're a criminal, you're going around uh, threatening, threatening to kill people if they don't give you their money. Well, that puts you at war with other people. So they now have a motive and incentive to get back at you somehow to protect their own rights. So we have, that's why we have a police system to get rid of people like this. So they're, they're not doing harm to other people. So if you, if you go around acting selfish in this conventional sense of trampling over other people's rights, well, one way this could come, come back to haunt you in the long run is you could get caught, thrown in jail. And you're actually, you're, you're, or you're obviously not winning uh, when you're in jail. Maybe you'll even be executed if you, if you killed somebody, to, if you murdered somebody to take their money. Um, so if you get executed in turn, 
well, you're obviously not winning anymore. Um, so, and there's other ways you could be losing out too, but that's just one example um, that shows how in the long run, what would be might have begun as what seems like a win-lose relationship actually turns out to be a lose-lose relationship. So both sides are worse off. The same is true if we now go to the, the second scenario I presented. Uh, it started off as a lose-win relationship, but again, that's only in the short run. If you consider the long run consequences of this sort of uh, relationship, it's actually, again, it's a lose-lose kind of relationship. So why would that be? Well, if you imagine for a moment, the, the person on the left, instead of being you, let's say that's Mother Teresa, she was sacrificing herself for other people. She did, might've helped out some people in India. She took care of the sick and the poor, but how much good did she really do for other people in the world compared to someone like Bill Gates or uh, Steve Jobs or uh, Jeff Bezos, one of these CEOs of these massive companies who were not subordinating themselves or sacrificing themselves for other people. They were pursuing their own interests. They were pursuing profits. They became billionaires by creating these products, which so many people want that they're able to earn him billions in revenue. That's how many people he's benefiting. So if people actually are pursuing their own interest ambitiously, and this is a point that Adam Smith, the 18th century economist made as well, if people pursue their own rational self-interest, neither sacrificing others to themselves nor themselves to others, they, they selfishly, in Rand's sense, uh, pursue their own interests, they actually end up doing more benefit than when they act as humble servants um, bowing down before others. So we ourselves are much better off when other people in the world are being productive and they have an incentive to be productive when they can do so selfishly, when they are rewarded themselves for the efforts of their productivity. If they're forced, as in socialism, to give away all their earnings through taxation or some other means, then they have a less, less incentive to produce and therefore the society is less productive as a whole and then people can't trade as much with each other. So we all benefit when everyone is allowed to pursue their own interests, produce values, and then trade them with one another. <clears throat> okay, so it ends up being a lose-lose relationship when people are not acting uh, selfishly themselves. Then, because when they don't act selfishly themselves, they're less productive, and then they, can't, they don't have as much to uh, benefit other people through trade, for instance. Okay, now, Coming back to the third scenario that was win-win, that is not only a win-win relationship in the short run, it's also a win-win relationship in the long run. It doesn't come back to bite you in the way that we saw in the previous two scenarios where it might look good at least for one of the sides in the short run, but there are some long-term consequences that are negative. Um, that doesn't happen. Like in the grocery store example I initially gave for this slide, uh, when you get the, the food in exchange for the money, that's, that's good for both sides, but there's no consequence down the road um, that upsets that and turns it, turns it sour into a win-lose a or a lose-win kind of relationship. It just remains being a win-win relationship. Okay, so 
this is Ayn Rand's idea of what selfishness is in contrast to that first slide where you're sacrificing others to yourself. Why? Well, because this is actually what is best for yourself. As we just saw in the conventional idea of selfishness where you're the holdup man, that comes back to bite you in some way. It's not the best for yourself in the long run. So if what selfishness means is doing what's best for yourself, well, this kind of relation, way of relating to other people is actually the, the truly selfish way. Now, you know, sometimes people debate, well, was this the right word for Ayn Rand's view? Should she adopt some other word? Um, that's a debate that is interesting and maybe we could talk about it some in the Q&A if you're interested. But I just wanna make clear that this way of relating to other people is Ayn Rand's understanding of what selfishness is. And she's understanding selfishness to be uh, doing what's best for yourself. And she thinks that this way of relating to people, to other people, is what's best for yourself, where you neither sacrifice yourself to others nor others to yourself. So on her understanding of what it means to be selfish, i.e. doing what's best for yourself, she thinks this is the truly selfish way of relating to other people. Okay, now I have two slides left and a few minutes more to go. So um, let me now go to the next slide where we're just gonna have one person, which is you. So selfishness as Ayn Rand understands it is not essentially a social concept. So it's not essentially about how you relate to other people. It has some implications for how you relate to other people, but that's not in its essence what it's about. In its essence, it's just about doing what's best for yourself, whether or not other people are around. So you could be selfish alone on a desert island. There are things that you could do that are best for yourself, and there are things that you could do that are not best for yourself. So if that's what we understand selfishness to mean, doing what's best for yourself, well, you could obviously be doing that or not on a desert island all by yourself. So what are some things that, according to Rand, you need to do to actually do what's best for yourself? Well, there are two key points. There's much more than this to it, but uh, just to keep it short and simple for this presentation, I'm just gonna mention two things you need to do in order to do what's best for yourself. And those are that you need to think and you need to produce. So let's consider uh, this case where you're alone on a desert island. Uh, why would you need to think and produce to do what's best for yourself? Well, let's say you, you were in a shipwreck and you, you wash ashore to this island and maybe in a few days, hopefully some other ship will come by and they can rescue you. But in the meantime, you need to find some way to stay alive. Well, how are you gonna do that? You have to figure that out. You can't just pray and hope that you're gonna survive. You have to take certain actions. And one of them is a cognitive action, namely thinking. So if you're gonna survive, you need to eat. So how are you gonna get some food? Well, you think to yourself, there's probably some fish around here, um, or at least maybe there are. And let's say you, uh, you see there are some in the water, but you're probably not gonna be able to catch them with your hands, so you have to, fashion some kind of tool. Okay, well, how are you gonna do that? Maybe a spear would help you. Maybe building a fishing net would help you. So you have to think, 
how am I going to achieve this goal? Maybe you decide that a fishing net would be the most effective way, but there's no rope around to, to build a fishing net out of, so you've got to construct one. Okay, how are you going to do that? You got to think again. Okay, there's a palm tree over here. Maybe I can uh, pull off some of its leaves and shred them into little strands and then weave them to, in, together so it's kind of like a rope. And then maybe I can use that as a net. Okay, so you've got this idea. You've thought about it but it's not enough to stop there. You can't just think and survive. Now you have to actually produce the thing. You have to take the idea that's in your mind that you've thought of and then bring it into reality. That's what being productive is about. It's about acting on some idea that you've got in your mind and then implementing it in the actual real world. So those two are clearly necessary if you are going to achieve your own interest if you're going to be selfish. That's uh, i.e. do what's best for yourself. Now, uh, there's one thing you can't do, and that is do whatever you feel like. Or you could do whatever you feel like, but you're not gonna uh, have much success surviving that way. So let's say you just feel lazy. Um, you don't feel like putting forth the effort of thinking, of producing, well, uh, then you're not going to come up with your fishing nets. You're not going to be able to catch the fish. You're not going to be able to live. So often people think of, uh, when they think of a selfish person, they just think of someone who acts on the whim of the moment. Uh, he just does whatever he feels like doing. But that's actually not selfish. If being selfish means doing what's best for yourself. Um, to do what's best for yourself, you have to apply your rational capacity. You have to think about is this really in my best long-term interest or not? Uh, you don't just automatically do what's in your interest. You have to figure that out. You have to choose, use your free will, your volition, decide to think, decide to act in accordance with your thinking. Then you have a chance at surviving and being happy. You can't just do whatever you feel like, including, uh, I don't feel like working today, um, I mean, you might never feel like working. You're just a lazy, you feel lazy all the time. If you just indulge that emotion of laziness, of anti-effort, then you're going to pay some kind of penalty. You're not going to be able to survive as well. Not going to be able to achieve things that allow you to survive, thrive, and be happy. Okay. Now, there is, there's much more than just thinking and producing that goes into uh, what you need to be selfish and uh, do what's best for yourself. And just to mention very briefly, I won't, I won't go into any of these, but Ayn Rand has, uh, she lists seven virtues, what she calls virtues, means of achieving values in her, in her uh, ethical system. And just to tell you what those seven virtues are, uh, the first two are rationality and productiveness. And I've already covered those two in this slide, um, thinking as a way of being rational, producing, productiveness. But what are the other five virtues that she mentions as things you need to do in, in order to actually uh, achieve your own interest? Um, independence, integrity, honesty, justice, and pride. So I'm just going to throw that out there and not go into any details. If you want to ask about any of those in the Q&A, uh, that's fine. But just to give you a just a taste uh, uh, to, of what her view more fully involves. You have to do all those sorts of things in order to actually achieve your own interest. And then finally, for my last slide, 
the reward of being selfish, as Ayn Rand understands it, as involving those seven virtues that I just listed, is happiness. So if we want to be happy, if that's our purpose, and for, for Rand, that is the purpose of life, that is the purpose of acting uh, morally, the purpose of morality for Rand is not to sacrifice yourself, it's to actualize yourself and be the best, most happy person that you can be. That's the goal, is to achieve happiness. And her ethics, she thinks that you need to exercise these virtues of thinking, productive, productiveness, and so forth in order to achieve happiness. They're not a guarantee that you will be happy. There's no guarantee for, I mean, you could get cancer, for instance, just because it runs in your, your family genetic history, or maybe there's an earthquake. There, so there are things beyond your control that can ruin your lives um, and prevent you from being happy. But what gives us the best shot at happiness is acting according to these virtues of thinking, productiveness, justice, and so forth. So these, these virtues are not a sufficient condition of being happy, but they are a necessary condition of being happy. And they give us the best shot at being happy. So there, in a nutshell, is uh, Ayn Rand's ideas about selfishness, as I understand them. There are these virtues we need to act on, and if we do so, we will be achieving our own self-interest. We will, we will be acting selfishly, and the reward of doing that is happiness. Okay, so, and this is the person who, the stick figure here, he's celebrating here. So this is supposed to represent a person who has achieved his happiness by, by acting selfishly in the way I've just described. Okay, so that's the end of my presentation. And I will now, I guess I'll stop the screen share and then we can open it up to a Q&A. Okay, okay, so um, uh, Dan is still recording. So if you have any questions, um, you can ask them. Or if you don't want to be recorded, you can type in your questions uh, on the chat box, right? So um, is there any questions? Hello. Hi, guys. Can you hear me? Yes, uh, we can hear you, Miss. Hi, this is Odetta. Thank Odetta. you for the presentation and for sharing this. I think it was really good uh, topic uh, to share today. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've been a reader a few years ago of uh, Iron Man uh, novels. Uh, Atlas Strike, of course, Strike Me and um, um, The Fountainhead. Uh, but then later I got interest to, to look at her interviews and um, uh, learn more about her um, uh, philosophy, but also learn how she articulated it because that was also something important. So um, I, um, I really embraced the, the philosophy of individualism and I really believe that the individual has a lot of power uh, in that selfishness um, aspect. And to um, not only, uh, the word happiness is a good word, but I think in, in today's um, uh, vocabulary, happiness is pursued like a, a cheer of the moment. But I would um, think of it as more of a meaningful uh, pursuit than just like a, um, a cheap moment uh, glory. So uh, I would think of a happiness as more of an achievement. But uh, without talking longer about it, I, I was listening to the selfless comparison that you gave earlier about uh, Mother Teresa. And I would uh, slightly disagree 
with you on that on the concept that Mother Teresa was like a, a selfless person, and uh, of course compared to other figures that we see today in the world that have um, helped develop the society, uh, she she's um, she didn't give the same contribute. But I would say that in her uh, philosophy or, or in her point of view, like Mother Teresa, she wasn't simply a selfless person. I think everything that she did, she had also a selfish reason, which is uh, going to heaven in her Catholic belief. Uh, so, um, or getting, getting that particular reward. So I think deep there, of course, she uh, behaved, she sacrificed herself, her body, her, her time, her life, uh, because she believed that she would get rewarded. And that is the happiness for her. I mean, I don't think we should uh, discuss the, the religion now and the truthful of any religion at this moment because it's not the topic, but I believe there is a selfish reason in a good uh, concept. Of course, everyone can give to society, like Mother Teresa gave something or, or other uh, brilliant minds have given to society, even product that we use today, but everyone gives it his talent. So I think what she gave uh, is also something that we can appreciate because it's a philosophy of uh, uh, life, but she didn't give it without any um, thing in return to her mind, to her uh, philosophy of living. So uh, what would you say to that? Or like, do you, what's your opinion? Yeah, I think that's a good point to raise. And people often raise this point uh, that everyone is acting selfishly, even someone like Mother Teresa, she's, she's doing what she wants because she thinks it benefits herself. And you mentioned this point about uh, getting into heaven. Um, so yeah, I think this is definitely a good point to raise. Uh, I, I have some discussion of it on my, on my YouTube channel. If you check out some of my videos, they're, they're on, on this topic. So in the case of Mother Teresa, I think, or in anyone, we need to know, to judge whether she's selfish, we have to know what her motivation is. So um, was her motivation for acting as she did because she thought this will get me into heaven? Or because uh, she thought, uh, well, this way of acting makes me happy? Or um, was her motivation just that she thought she had some religious duty? to act in a certain way, whether or not it gave her a good feeling, whether or not it gave her, uh, it got, it was a ticket, a ticket into heaven. Um, so I don't know the biography of Mother Teresa very well. So we can only uh, speak, or I can only speak in hypotheticals here. If her motive for doing what she did was because she thought, oh, this will get me into heaven and it might be unfortunate that I have to endure this um, not very enjoyable kind of life here on earth, but it's going to be much better in the long run. Speaking about long run consequences, um, it actually ends up being in my own interest in the long run. Um, if it gets me into heaven, which is a lovely place to be, if that's what was driving her, then I think there is a good case that she was acting in a selfish way because she was trying to benefit herself. And she thought of herself as extending past this earthly life and having some uh, afterlife. Um, but was that really her, her thought process? I don't know. 
if it was, I think she was selfish, but I don't think uh, it is for everyone. I think some people um, might just think, well, I just have this duty, whether I like it or not, whether it benefits me or not, um, I'm just supposed to do this. And actually it would be bad for me to have a selfish motivation. If that were my motivation in doing something that would corrupt the action, it would no longer be a good or moral thing for me to do. Um, it's good for me to do precisely because it's not self-interested. This is a view that I think many people will hold and perhaps Mother Teresa held. So I think we'd have to ask her or at least have some way of inferring from her behavior what her actual motive was. Um, but I don't, I don't think, um, I, I don't think everyone is, is driven explicitly I don't think everyone is consciously motivated by doing something because they think it's going to come back and benefit themselves. They might've just absorbed from religion or from society that they have a duty to sacrifice themselves. And um, they go through with these duties, whether they think it's going to benefit themselves or not. And it might just be a nice byproduct that it gives them satisfaction or some kind of happiness by performing or some, a certain kind of action but it's just a byproduct. It's not their actual motive or reason for doing so. So I think it could be still selfless, even if they do get satisfaction, since the satisfaction is not necessarily, not necessarily their reason for doing it. So I've gone on for a while there. I'll just, I'll stop there. And if you okay, want to come thank back. You. No, no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Uh, and I also would say, I don't know, and nobody knows exactly uh, her motivation in depth. We don't know her integrity and everything, whatever the, uh, controversial uh, topics are about her in particular as a person. Uh, I just pointed out because sometimes it might strike people when you present something like this, especially those people who hold the same Catholic, Catholic values, because we're talking beyond religion, eh, the value here. Uh, so uh, maybe I felt wasn't the best um, uh, example, but I do really strongly agree with you that selfless people inside lack sometimes uh, integrity and um, what we call spine, uh, because uh, they are lost and corrupted into their motivation uh, uh, to um, pursue something. So um, it was uh, that comment. So I think maybe shouldn't go further on this because there are many other questions. But thank you for explaining. Yeah, thanks for the question. Thanks, thanks for the question. Uh, so I see a lot of comments, some questions on the chat. So let's clear an easy question. Uh, Dr. Ort. Norton, do you have a book to recommend uh, for, for Enran's ideas of selfishness? Glad you asked. I just happened to have right here in, um, her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. So this is one of her, her nonfiction books. She is, she's most known for her friction. Atlas Shrugged, uh, maybe her, and her, The Fountainhead are her, her most famous novels. Um, Anthem and We the Living also are, are novels of hers. And they, they dramatically illustrate some of these ideas that I've been talking about. So they show you what it looks like in concrete form to, to be selfish, as Ayn Rand understands selfishness. So if you want to understand Ayn Rand's views of selfishness, I think a great way to do that is to read her novels. And then you get a very concrete, vivid idea of how she understands um, what selfishness is. But then there's also her nonfiction. So um, I think fiction is great, but there's also a role for nonfiction. Um, 
And on this topic of selfishness in particular, she's got a whole book on it, uh, or with the theme of selfishness, which is the one I showed, The Virtue of Selfishness. So that would be my, my top recommendation for a nonfiction book if you wanna learn more about her, her views on selfishness. Okay, so, um, okay, let me clear some of the chat. Uh, Wufu and Kit, uh, you guys want to ask your questions? I think your questions pertain to, you know, uh, the, the desert island uh, con context, whether selfishness apply in a desert island con context or does it only apply in a social context? Uh, and I, I, I think it amounts to something like this. Yeah, uh, you, you guys want to um, ask the questions yourself or, or you guys don't want to be on video? Uh Question. Let me, let me, uh, let me just uh, uh, make some comments here. I, I think the definition without social context for selfishness is really not appropriate for this type. And it could have worked in the Ice Ages, you know, 20,000 years ago. But with 8 billion of us running around, we have to learn how to deal with each other. Therefore, the social context is inevitable. And I think you need more, what you call dimensions uh, than what uh, Ren has actually mentioned. And uh, this is, uh, especially we don't need to be on a, a desert island uh, to appreciate that uh, happiness is not so easily achieved. Two months of lockdown uh, has already created enough problems for us to solve. You know, don't have to imagine what it's like being a desert island. Anyway, when you're on a desert island, there's no feeling involved. It is pure fight or flight. And there's nowhere else to go except into the deep blue ocean. So there's no feeling that you want to be lazy, etc., etc. So clearly, whether you like it or not, the first instinct is purely instinct is to make sure you survive. So I think uh, the application of Ryan's uh, thesis uh, should be examined uh, with greater latitude uh, to really understand how it is to be used in this social context. Thank you. Okay, so thanks for your- Applied to social context. Yeah, thanks for your, your question. So on the, on the conventional way of understanding selfishness, I think you're right that it does only apply in a social context. So if you look at a dictionary for the definition of selfish, I think typically it says something like um, concern with uh, your own interests at the expense of others or in disregard of others. Um, so it's it's baked in to the very definition of what it of selfishness that it involves others somehow. So that's that's the conventional understanding. And if that is how you're understanding selfishness, then um, you're right. It does have to be a a social kind of concept. But that's part of how Ayn Rand is reconceiving the idea of selfishness. The subtitle of her book, um, I don't know if you can see it here is a new concept of egoism 
So egoism is often a, uh, it, it's a synonym of selfishness. And she's presenting a new concept of what it means to be selfish, which is simply having concern with your own interests, whether or not anybody else is around. So on her new conceptualization of what selfishness means or what egoism means, you don't have to have other people in the picture. You could just be on a desert island. Um, so now whether or not there's, you would have any temptation to, um, to just be lazy. You said, you mentioned there's a flight or flight, fight or flight mechanism that might just kick in. Those are, you know, further questions, which might be interesting questions, but it's still true that there are certain things that are in your interest to do certain things that benefit yourself and certain things that don't benefit yourself. Um, praying, for example, is not going to help you. I mean, if you're a religious person, you might think that spending at least some amount of your time praying to the gods, if you think there is a god, is going to help you in this survival scenario. And on Ayn Rand's view, she's an atheist, there is no god. Um, that's not going to be one of the things that actually helps you and would actually be selfish, not in your own interest. Um, so, I mean, it is, this just comes back to the issue of how we're thinking of selfishness. If you conceive it in the way she does, then it's not by its nature a social concept, although it does have implications for how you act when you're in a social context. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, thanks for your question, uh, Wufu. Uh, Kit, you have a lot of questions. You, you, you want to come on? Kit Yen? Hello, Kit. Uh, uh, so, so I think Kit's questions is about, you know, uh, what if it's uh, the con... Okay. What does... Okay, I think it's a question on politics. Uh, what does Rand say about authority enforcement, enforcement of law? Okay. Uh, example one, uh, cops putting a gunman in jail, yeah, for example. Um, what are the limits to laws and government power based on objectivism? What if there's a bigger government which can bring more happiness to most people? Uh, yeah, so is, is, is that a correct question? So yeah, we'll, we'll just... So 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 this so how does selfishness translate to politics? Yeah. Okay. So in the the political sphere, um, the key concept, or at least one fundamental concept, is the concept of individual rights. So how do we implement selfishness in a social context? So let's say we we got off this desert islands if we started on one. Um, and now we move to, to society, how do we achieve our own interests in this social context? Well, the key thing we need to do, according to Rand, is we need to recognize individual rights. And what are those? Well, as Rand understands them, they are, uh, or one way to get it, how she thinks of rights, is that they can only be violated through physical force. So you have a right to do anything that you wish, as long as you are not applying physical force to somebody else. You're not preventing them with force um, 
from acting in the way that they see best. So as we saw in the example of the holdup man who's got a gun, uh, he's, he's, he's using force or he's, he's at least threatening force uh, to prevent those people from acting in the way that they think is best for themselves. They would rather keep this money for themselves, spend it on what they want. They, they've earned it. They think uh, they'd like to use that to buy stuff for themselves, but the holdup man is preventing them from doing that. So he's not allowing them to do what's best for themselves, which would be to buy food or clothes or whatever they want. He's taking that away from them and then using it to you know, buy whatever for himself. So if, if people are going to prosper in society, they need to have some way of interacting with each other, um, which is predictable and which allows everyone to survive and benefit from being in this society. It's no good being in society with other people if other people are just gonna exploit you. So you might actually be better off on a desert island than for example, in Nazi Germany, if you're a Jew. Um, so simply being in society is not necessarily uh, in your own interest if it's not a society that doesn't protect your rights. If it's a, if it's a society that allows other people to vote your, way, vote your rights away or throw you in jail simply for having a certain thought um, that doesn't allow you the freedom to speak your mind, the sorts of freedoms that um, are enshrined in, for instance, the American Bill of Rights, freedom of speech. So if society is gonna allow individuals to all individuals, not just some individuals, but all individuals to uh, succeed, have a shot at being happy and have a flourishing, happy life, the, the fundamental way to do that is to protect individual rights, which means stop people from using force against each other. The only kind of interactions between people that are allowed are voluntary interactions. So like at the gro in the grocery store example I gave, you voluntarily choose to give money to the store, they voluntarily choose to give you food in exchange for that amount of money. So both sides agree on the terms and it ends up being a win-win relationship. So that's, that's how you implement this view of selfishness in a social context. You protect individual rights and that's what's conducive to everyone achieving their self-interest and their own happiness. Uh, okay, that's a, a, a small intro to, to the politics of capitalism. Okay, um, so I see Sean uh, raised his hand. So Sorry, uh, uh, before I go to Sean, Sean um, I, I think Kit had another question in the uh -huh. chat, which I think is quite interesting. Okay. Uh, maybe you can respond to that. Um, the question was about, what about um, circumstances or situations where you have a win-lose uh, win um, outcome, right? So if, if I may suggest that such a situation will be maybe like if individuals are stuck in a, in a lifeboat stranded out at sea, and there's only like uh, perhaps one pack of uh, canned sardines left, right? And uh, they got to share it between, or rather there's only one left, so they can't really share it. So it's pretty much like just having two guys and uh, fighting over one pack of sardines. Uh, what do you do about that? Like what, what exactly is, uh, is the framework for blanks, selfishness ethics in um, emergency situations? I think uh, Ed Van talked about the ethics of emergencies quite a bit, so perhaps you can explain this point. Yeah, um, 
thanks for the question. The, the lifeboat kind of situation is one where, um, I mean, different, different ways of acting might be appropriate depending on how we, how we uh, fill in the details. So um, let's say that you're on a lifeboat and with one other person and it can only hold uh, one person. So if there are two people on it, uh, one of them has to get off if at least if anyone is going to survive. Now, who is the other person? Is it Adolf Hitler? Well, in that case, uh, it might be, and you're the other person, you're, yourself. So it's you and Adolf Hitler. Well, then it might be in your own interest, I think it would be in your own, your own interest to try to you know, get him off the boat and keep the sardines or whatever the food is for yourself, because it's not in your own interest to exist in a world with Hitler. Actually, it's in your interest to exist in a world without Hitler. So I think you would be um, fully rational to try to throw Hitler overboard and eat all the sardines for yourself. But now let's change the, the scenario. Let's say it's you and your spouse or some lo your child, a loved one. Um, if it's your spouse, your husband or your wife, you might be so much in love with that person that you wouldn't want to go on living without the person. You would just be miserable and depressed your entire life. So in that case, it might be in your interest to uh, let, let your spouse have all the sardines and just allow yourself to starve to death. And that, you know, that'd be a tragic scenario um, if you were in it, but it might actually be in your own rational self-interest in the long run, because the alternative of letting your spouse die could just be so horrible. You, you would be enduring decades of misery having this huge hole in your life that it just wouldn't be, you'd rather not live that kind of life. So in that kind of case, maybe um, being selfish would mean allowing yourself to die and allowing your spouse to live. So I think it depends on um, the details of the situation as to what would be the selfish thing to do. Um, but it could go in different ways, depending on how we fill that in. Yeah, maybe we just Fortunately, we don't live in lifeboats, so we don't have to make uh, such, you know, uh, horrific choices all the time. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, really understanding or, or looking into scenarios which are the very vast uh, minority, rather the minority of cases, right? Generally in uh, capitalist societies, uh, when we trade, when we, when we engage in business, it's typically a win-win situation, right? Um, but for those win-lose situations, I, th I think it's very tricky because when you don't have, um, when, when there aren't exactly details that you can rationalize on, right? What if, if there's a, another person who is a stranger on the boat um, who, who's fighting for the space of life world? Like, you don't really know this person. It's just another person that's part of the ship. Uh, what, what would you, how, how would you deal with the stranger? Um, given that it's not Adolf Hitler or it's not your spouse, right? Because uh, those, those, those situations are, you just have lesser information to mm -hmm. rationalize. So, so what, how would you do, what would you do in those situations? Okay, so if it's just a stranger, you don't know anything particularly positive or anything particularly negative about the person, um, what would I do? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, one might be just so disgusted with the thought of having to kill somebody else 
like it that that might haunt you for the rest of your life that you'd rather not go on and just you'd rather add, let that person survive and then you die yourself um or uh, maybe that's not uh your attitude or my attitude i don't know i haven't really thought this through and tried to um, think through what would I do in such a circumstance. Maybe, maybe I would fight with the guy and try to throw him overboard and just tell myself, you know, this is, I don't like doing this, but I'm in a lifeboat situa situation. This is not normal life. And I want to survive. Um, I've, there's a lot of values I'd like to pursue in the world. And um, this is the only way to do it. Um, then maybe I'll do it. Um, so maybe it's just optional. It might vary from person to person, depending on your personality. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure what I would do. And I don't know that there is a universal right answer as to what one should do if you're on a lifeboat and the other person is a stranger. So, so I have a question. Um, just now, um, maybe Justin uh, was uh, asking Maybe not really asking you yourself, but uh, if we want to apply uh, the Anran's theory, how would you think that Anran would use her selfishness theory to to resolve the scenario where there isn't a win-win situation, but it has to be a win-lose? Is that has she considered that situation or not, or? Maybe she missed out such kind of situ scenarios uh, in her theory. Okay, I, I I would like to chip in a bit. So, so I, I I think we are very focused on this topic of uh, lifeboat situations. So I think the point of a very short essay by Anne Rand about this uh, ethics of emergency is that. Uh, when people go to philosophical classes or meetup, so you you mod you, you you put a context of a lifeboat, right? And you try to extrapolate the ethics of a lifeboat to the whole of society which is not in a lifeboat situation. So I think that is something that we tend to do in every philosophy uh meetup and and well I I, I think that this this uh, in my opinion, just my opinion, I think this amounts to an error, okay? A philosophical error. And well, this, I, 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 I think it will render it that, that kind of philosophy inapplicable. But I think then, uh, then already said that this is, a, this is a very tough situation. It's, it's not, it's, it's, is 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 a very tough situation and it may vary that is is slightly optional right so it doesn't mean that since there's no uh no universal answer to 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 such a lifeboat situation and and therefore we 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 say you know the the philosophy is 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 we we throw the philosophy out the window or something like that i i don't know uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, I agree. There are tough scenarios in the, in the life. Maybe with one single theory, may not be able to resolve everything. And maybe this is the case that uh, I guess if everyone using her theory would probably only applies to the scenarios where there are a win-win situation. And if there is a win-win situation, definitely we should 
based on uh, the individual's best interest and try to achieve the winning situation in the long run. Um, actually, I, I, I'm uh, from just now. Yes. Hi. Hi. Hey. She's gone. We lost the audio. Uh, sorry, you muted yourself. Um, you you gotta unmute yourself. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, I was looking at the area where Aaron in her maybe in her book showing that with the selfishness theory, that is a necessary step to go to happiness. That is something that makes me a bit feel a bit surprised because I didn't know that there is a fixed way to, for us to achieve happiness, and sometimes the I, because I hear different kinds of theories that whether happiness is because we have what we want or is because we want what we have and uh, whether happiness is only when we achieve a certain state then we become happiness or maybe because we are already uh, feeling gratitude and appreciating the life and without achieving more we are already feeling content and happy so so yeah so i, I feel it's quite interesting that Enron is um offering such a way to say that it's a necessary uh step before uh before you can achieve happiness and that's something that uh, i feel quite interesting lah. and i don't know whether it's the right way maybe it's just her own opinion Okay, thanks for your comments. And uh, she, so yeah, she does definitely think there's certain things that are necessary in order to achieve happiness. It's not a subjectivist view where you can just do anything. Anything is just as good as anything else at, uh, as far as achieving, as far as a means to being a means to achieving happiness. No, she says there are definite things you need to do. Um, slitting your own throat. Um, is not a means to achieving your own happiness, being a um, uh, living off of uh, government welfare instead of being a productive person, assuming you have a choice between those two. Um, one is definitely um, a better way or, or the only way um, to achieve happiness. You will achieve self-esteem, for instance, by being a productive person, whereas you wouldn't if you're just a couch potato living off of um, handouts from the governments and you need self-esteem to to achieve happiness so th there are definite facts about human nature and about the world that require us to that, that are required of us if we're going to achieve happiness um, on Ayn Rand's view and she calls her philosophy objectivism and like part of the significance of that is that there is a factual basis for acting in a certain way. So um, and the term objectivity applies to different parts of her philosophy, both to her views of knowledge. She doesn't think all knowledge is just merely opinion. No, she thinks some things are objectively true. And also um, in the realm of ethics, she thinks there are certain ways of acting that are objectively better than other ways of acting, um, assuming that life is our goal and that happiness is our purpose, there are certain things that are objectively better to do than other things. Um, there's more that could be said about all of this as well as her, her understanding of what happiness is. Happiness is not just a superficial or fleeting emotion. It's a very deep 
profound feeling about yourself in the world. You, it's, it's a very fundamentally positive view of yourself and of the world. You think of the world as a, a place where you can achieve success and values. Um, she has a, what she calls the benevolent universe premise, which is that, which holds that the world is open to human achievements. We're not doomed to failure and misery. Um, this, this life is not a veil of tears where we're just waiting to get into some really good thing like the afterlife. No, we can actually have success here on this earth, but only if we do certain things like be rational, be productive, be honest, be just, these sorts of virtues I, I listed in, in the talk. And um, I can't give a proof of all of this by any means in this, this short Q&A, but uh, I, I hope that uh, you are interested in, uh, re if you read some of her works, I think you will find um, something that's more like a proof that demonstrates why we need to act in certain ways in order to really achieve happiness in this deep, profound, enduring sense. So um, I refer you more to the objectivist literature if you, you want to know more about that. Um, Thank you. Okay, uh, so I'll just let uh, Sean uh, ask his questions. Yeah, so yeah, what's your question, Sean? Uh, okay, because um, we are looking at the pandemic now. I will not talk about the America, but I'm, talk I'm, I'm talking about the Singapore concept. Uh, regards and also how locals interact with, with the foreigners. You know, I think regards to productivity, uh, Singapore government actually has uh, throw lots, you know, lots of lots of handouts. Okay, and a lot of people actually do not want to get the handouts, but it's because the circumstances that they are unable to be productive. So in this sense, okay, this situation here, uh, will productivity, that virtue applies, you know, in the Singapore co uh, context because a lot of people, employed freelancers are losing jobs. And it, I, I myself actually, I become a tri uh, nurse, you know, as, as a temp job, that's one. And two, pride. Um, I, cite, I cite two examples in Singapore. Number one, foreigners okay or expatriates were working in singapore i mean some actually hang their flag on their independence or national day well in fact that the singapore law forbids the display of the uh, overseas country flag you know unless it's a it's, it's on official uh, mission otherwise foreigners expatriates who live in singapore have to display the singapore flag you know and also at times Okay, that's, that's one. Two, because of the pride, we see some foreigners, expatriates, okay, took off the mask, gathered at the one of the keys in Singapore, outside the restaurants, take away beer. While the whole of the Singapore community itself, right, is being hunkered down. So in this sense, what, based on the three examples I listed, how can we go about these two virtues, productivity and pride? No. Okay. okay. So, so uh, the first one is, should we accept uh, handouts during the time of pandemic? At the times that you know people's yeah. basic ability to actually to be productive, right, was taken away from a virus. Okay. Yeah, so on that one, 
I think it does make sense, at least in, in, for certain people, uh, to accept uh, a check from the government. I actually got a check from the government uh, several weeks ago, and I needed that to pay my rent. Um, so if, if the government has made it impossible for, for you to pay your bills, to survive, to get food, then I think it's, it's reasonable, it's justifiable for you to accept uh, a check from the government, a handout. Um, it's unfortunate that it has to be that way, but you didn't cause yourself. It wasn't through some fault of your own that you were put out of a job. Um, it was through, well, it was partly this pandemic, but aggravated uh, by the kinds of policies the government took in response to it. I mean, this is a, it can be a complicated issue to, to sort out all these factors, but assuming that it's as a result of government policies that you were put out of work, like if you own a restaurant or something, and then they, they just, by mandate of law, they close all restaurants indefinitely, and that was your only source of income, well, uh, I think it's reasonable for you to accept a, a, a loan, or, or maybe not even a loan, just outright money from the government, um, because that's your only way to survive. So being selfish in this case, I think would involve accepting some money from the government, unless you think you have a right to that, even if there were not a pandemic. So if you're the person who just thinks, um, even before the pandemic, oh, you know, society just owes me a living. I shouldn't have to be forced to bother with uh, going to work. Um, I think welfare is a good thing, even though it involves forcing other people, living at other people's expense who are out there working. If that's your attitude, then I don't think you have a right, at least not a moral right, um, to accept uh, money through the government, which is, in the end, it's, it's other people's money. Ayn Rand has an essay about this in her book, uh, The Voice of Reason, which I have here. Um, it's called a question of scholarships. So it deals with the question of, you know, if the government offers you some kind of scholarship, should you accept it? And she answers yes, under certain conditions, uh, along the lines of what I was just gesturing at. If you think, you know, um, in principle, I'm against the government taking money from some people, giving it to others, then you have a moral right to accept the scholarship if you're offered one. But if you think, no, um, I, I am owed this by other people, I should be able to live as a parasite basically, uh, make other people my slave and just live off of their productiveness, then you don't have a moral right to the money. So it depends on the, the, the mental framework as to whether um, it's morally right for you to accept the money in this case. Okay, uh, so I think Sean's question, second and third question, uh, concerns about pride, you know, uh, I guess maybe you just say a few words about uh, the objectivisms, uh, the, the objectivist concept of pride and, and, and then we'll move on to uh, another, other questions, all right? Okay. okay, so pride for objectivism is one of the central virtues <clears throat> um, and what it consists of for, for Rand is, you can think of it as making yourself into the best person you can be. 
So not resigning yourself to flaws in your own character. If you sense that there's something wrong uh, about yourself, if you're, let's say you're fearful of being independent, standing up for yourself, if someone else is uh, pressuring you to act in a certain way, um, maybe you just, you cower down and you go along with what others are doing, but that's actually not what's best for yourself. It's best for you to think for yourself independently. Um, so if you see that there's this defect in yourself that you would be better off asserting yourself more and um, not bowing down to peer pressure from others, then you should try to fix that about yourself. And you might have other problems. It might not be that you lack independence. It might be that um, you're, you're not productive enough, you're, you're lazy, maybe you're on welfare. Um, so this is another flaw you need to correct. So in general, it's, it's trying to make yourself into the best person you possibly can. Uh, she describes it in one place as moral ambitiousness. So um, you're, you're ambitious to make yourself as good as you can be, recognizing that that's, that's how you maximize your chances of achieving happiness, as opposed to just saying, being humble, saying, oh, I'm just a worthless, miserable sinner. Who am I to, to think I can be anything good in this world? Um, I'm just going to resign myself to being a weak, um, flawed person. No, you have free will. You can make yourself, you can choose to make yourself better than you are, um, assuming you're not already perfect. Um, and if you have that choice, you should exercise it. You should try to make yourself the best person you can be. That's what's most selfish. And that's what's going to make you as happy as you possibly can be. Uh, all right. So uh, Ilya has a question. So uh, hi, Ilya. So I'll, I'll come to you. Uh, yeah, hello. Um, let me scroll up 300 pages to get to the question. One second. Um, all right, here I am. Yeah, so really the question is, I'll try to frame it not too broadly so it's easier to answer, but the, the question is around how does Rand's theory address the fact that uh, humans are social beings and at least in, in part, I think it's hard to argue that in part, that particularly with close relationships like, you know, father, son, husband, wife, and, and, and even close friends, um, it doesn't appear to be always, the decisions and behaviors don't always appear to be driven entirely by self-interest. So the question is, how does Rand's theory address this? And is her view that we should be applying a narrow self-interest in all of these cases? And if so, how would that even really work? Okay. So she definitely thinks we should always be self-interested in, in any relationships, but so including in family relationships, father, son, as you mentioned, we should always be doing what's, what's in our own interest, but what is in our own interest might take some work to figure it out. It's, it's not always obvious. So one thing in the, in the case of family relationships is first be clear you want a family. If uh, you, this is something you should think about rationally, Given your goals in life, given your personality, your values, your character, um, is this the kind of life you want to have? Do you want to have other people who are uh, you have to raise for 18 years uh, in the United States? Um, you're legally responsible, at least to that age. So it's a huge commitment, and you shouldn't take that commitment on lightly. It's a it's a big decision. And it's, it's uh, something you should be selfish about. If you wanna be happy, you, you shouldn't just flip a coin and decide, okay, I'll have a kid. No, you should give this some serious thoughts. 
I mean, sorry, sorry, Dan, sorry to interrupt. I just, just reframe it slightly. Let's say it's in my, I already have a kid, for example, and I'm a bit older and the kid is 18 and it's in my interest in this scenario that the kid stays at home, works on my farm and help, helps the family business, whatever the case may be. But my kid wants to become a philosopher, perhaps a brand theory or, or something else. So it's, in, it's definitely, I mean, I can't see much benefit personally that my kid's going to go and become a philosopher or wants to potentially be a mother Teresa and help kids in, in Bangladesh, right? So that's not in my interest. But because I can definitely see many cases where a, a parent would support, not, all, not in all cases, but many parents would support their child's decision to do what they really want to because of, well, for love of their child, wanting them to pursue their dreams, even though their narrow self-interest may not be that the, the kid goes off overseas and does other things or, or becomes a philosopher. It's actually much better if they do what the parent prescribes. So that, that's the kind of context that I wanted to, to gauge the response on. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, I'm a bit wary of this phrase, narrow self-interest. So if, if what that means, if that's another way of saying um, your self-interest uh, out of context, if you're not considering the full context, if you're not considering all the long-run consequences of some decision or some action, well, that's not, that's not what you want to be doing. You want to be considering um, the full context, the long-run consequences of your choices and your actions. So if you have a child and your child or your, your son or daughter um, uh, has the dream of going off and uh, pursuing a career as a philosopher or an artist or whatever, and alternatively, the, uh, the child could stay at home and help you work on the family farm, um, what is it in your own interest for the child to do? Well, I think most most uh, parents would uh, it would be in their interest for the child to do what makes them happy. Do you want a miserable child on your hands, basically acting as a slave um, of sorts, slaving away on this family farm, uh, being miserable for decades, wishing that they were off pursuing their dream as being a philosopher and an artist or dentist or whatever? Um, does it really make you happy to um, see your own child in this miserable state for decades? I think um, most, at least American parents, I mean, there might be different cultures that actually, I think there are different cultures where I've noticed in, in uh, many Asian students I had when I was a graduate student, um, I would be a teaching assistant and they would come to my office hours and some, we would sometimes be talking about the major and I'd say, well, how did you choose your major? Whether it's, you know, biology or mathematics. And, and they'd say, well, you know, this is what my parents wanted me to do. It's not really what I would choose for myself, um, but I'm doing it because this is what my, my, my parents want me to do. Well, um, so I think there are cultures where, where parents aren't primarily um, concerned with their 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 children to um, do it is best for them, uh, but I think these are non self interested cultures, and I I don't think that's actually good for the happiness of either party. I don't think it's good for the 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 happiness of the child who's doing something devoting a life to something they're not really interested in, or for their parents. They don't get to see their their children be happy and flourish by pursuing something that they love. They see them uh, just 
dutifully uh, carrying out their own wishes for the child. And I, I don't think, I mean, if I'm a parent, I wouldn't be, uh, I, I would be happier seeing my child do what they're really passionate about rather than just what might make them a lot of money or looks prestigious on the outside. Mm. Um, but so, implicit in that just, and, and I know there's other questions, so but I just wanted to comment that implicit in being able to, being happy for somebody to pursue their pleasures is that you are considering their self-interest, not only your own. I mean, I'm not saying that there's no role for your own self-interest, but in conjunction with that, you must be considering the other person's self-interest as well and then deriving happiness from, from that, which I think goes much broader than, but perhaps it's just the way it's been portrayed or defined, but it, it seems a lot broader than selfishness uh, in, in the sense that, you know, Rand would have it. But I, I could be wrong about that, but just wanted to, to make the observation. Well, she, she does think that your self-interest can dovetail or integrates. There's not a conflict between, uh, rash, at least among rational people, um, among self-interest. So it, it is often in your own interest to take into account what is in someone else's interests. So going back to the political point about individual rights, um, if we wanna uh, have the most successful society, the, a society that we ourselves would wanna join, we have to recognize, well, other people, they also have their own self-interests to, to pursue and that they wanna pursue. So if we, if we implement this principle of individual rights, where everyone can do whatever they want within their own sphere, as long as they don't physically interfere with someone else, that's a way of um, implementing selfishness or self-interest in society. So the, the self-interest of different people can dovetail with each other. Um, I hope that uh, answers your question, Ilya. Yeah, all good, thanks. Uh, okay, so um, I don't see any questions that is on this subject. <laughs> it, it's sprawled into other things. Um, so are there, so there's a lot of people who, who, who are uh, silent, right? Uh, do they have any questions? You know, if not, I will uh, close this officially, right? Um, EV go. So um, you, you, you want to come on and do you have any questions for Dan? because I see you commenting on the chat, but yeah. Evie? Hi. Hi. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, I'm just commenting to what um, some people are saying. Um, I think it's just too specific selfishness as um, a singular you know, concept. Oftentimes we run into issues um, when you, you know, when you consider that there are so many other factors that, that you need to take. I think someone mentioned that we're not living in the ice age. So to take part of that concept of selfishness and apply it, assuming that it does not affect someone else in a negative way, again, that is subjective to, to perception. So we can go round and round here, but I think a balanced view is good and that's what we're listening into. Um, no matter you know what whatever differences we have um, like I'm discussing with Sean about uh, grouping people in a certain way and having governments that give out benefits um, yeah I'm just taking a little bit here and there so thanks for sharing I don't really have a question though yep. thanks um, for your comment uh, 
anyone else uh, want to have? Uh, I'll take last question, right? So, so last question for the day. Anyone want to come up? So, uh, if not, then uh, okay. Kit, Kit has a question. Yeah, Kit. Hi, Kit. Can you hear us? Please. Uh, yeah. Me. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, I I think what I heard was that uh, it's only the government should only step in uh, when uh, to avoid violence to protect people. Uh, but there are a lot of situations currently uh, where the law actually uh, is not about uh, violent crime. Uh, let, let, let's say uh, copyright or, or, or something. I, I would say that the majority of, of current law uh, is not uh, directly concerned with uh, protecting against violence. So, uh, yeah, what, what, what does Rand say about that? Uh, well, if you really want to know what Rand says about that, I would recommend her article on copyrights and patents. She has in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Oops. Um, there's an essay called Patents and Copyrights, or, uh, yeah. So um, she does think there, there is a role for, for governments, and that's, I think there's, there's a, some kind of tie to, to physical force. Like if you come up with some idea, Thomas Edison, you invent the light bulb, uh, and this is something that you have come up with by your own thinking and your own work. And now, do you have the rights to the, the physical benefits? Can you now sell that or at least license other people to, to produce it? Or can other people just take all the results of your efforts and basically treat you as a slave, exploit you? You've done all the work to come up with it. Well, shouldn't you get the benefit? Shouldn't you get the, the product of your own mind? Well, patents and copyrights help say, they're their way of saying, yes, you get the product of your own labor or effort or thinking. Um, people don't get to take away the fruits, the physical fruits of your labor, whether it's the money you earn from uh, inventing this product, they can't just take that away. And that's, that's part of the, how the profit mode works. People have more incentive to to come up with these inventions if they know that they have a right to the physical rewards they can get as a result of that as opposed to those rewards just going off to someone else you know why bother coming up with the invention so ultimately i think there is a tie-in to something physical um, uh, with something like patents and copyrights and if you want to know more about that i would recommend her essay and there's also a uh objectivist intellectual adam mossoff who I believe he's based at George Mason University, and he's an expert on this, on the issue of patents and copyrights. And if you have further questions about it, um, I would recommend uh, Adam as a source. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, there's criminal, criminal law that, that, you know, uh, that prevents the physical use of force. But there's also civil law, right? What we have here to, to protect our our intellectual rights, property rights, and and trademarks, and 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 those kind of things, which we use every day because we deal with each, each other in business every day. So like ninety percent of the time, we use this civil law, and like ten percent of the time, we use this uh, 
you know, criminal law on on these robbers and murderers and this kind of people. So so that's why it all comes together. Um, we, we need objective law, basically. Um, okay, so Henry, uh, could I, I have one last question, Henry? Uh, oh, uh, Wufu. Okay, yeah, one last question. And after this, I'll officially close it and I'll leave the room open. Okay, so so Wufu, do you have any? Yeah, what, yeah. what's the question? Uh, this, of course, is uh, directly to Norton. Uh, first, uh, you know, we have discussed a lot about uh, writings. You know, the best test is in eating the pudding itself. And uh, if you, I'm sure you know perfectly well how her own married life, her own decision-making process is. And uh, it is not the best example of her own hypothesis. And uh, therefore, you know, this is one thing I, I, I like to just mention that uh, it may all be well and good to put it in writing, but when it comes to actually executing it, uh, she has exactly the same flaws as all of us. And I think it's something that we should all remember, that uh, we are all not perfect beings, as you have mentioned, and the decision-making process uh, is not as easy as you think based on just certain principles. I, in fact, given some uh, other books that uh, perhaps you should consider uh, in counterpoint to what uh, Ren has, uh, has written about. Of course, uh, if you have read Karl Polanyi's The Great Transformation, I think it'll be a useful comparison. And of course, John Rouse himself has talked a lot about this, especially in the social context, and he has introduced the idea of the veil of ignorance. Not only that, uh, you know, one of the virtues you mentioned that Ren advocated was justice. And this itself, I think it should be the, one of the, uh, not so much selfishness as justice. And when it comes to justice in the social context, you have to consider the interests of others the same way as you consider your own interests. And therefore there's a fundamental conflict uh, when you apply Rand's uh, theory of self-interest uh, with the, with the uh, virtue of justice in the social context. Thank you. Okay, uh, yeah, just a quick one. So what do you think about John Rawls' theory of justice? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I haven't read his book, A Theory of Justice. Well, I've read part of it. I think I've read one or two chapters. Uh, uh, several years ago, so um, I'm not very familiar with it, but um, he he has this idea of, of a veil of ignorance, I think, and you should yeah. choose policy on the basis of uh, not knowing the particulars about who you are. Um, and I don't know that that's, that's a right way to approach political philosophy. Um, Rand has written, she has an article about a review, I believe, of Rawls's book. So if you, if you want Rand's take on, on at least a review of Rawls, you can, I think it's in the book Philosophy Who Needs It. Um, but there's been other commentary by objectivists. I think there, elsewhere in the objectivist literature, there, there might be more. Um, I know, I think Rawls does have this idea that because we don't earn 
our genetics or our our our, our brain. <laughs> I, I think there's a line, something like that, in one of Leonard Peikoff's books uh, about since we don't earn our our brain or our intelligence, we we're just, we inherit genetically a certain level of intelligence. Therefore, we don't have a right to the results of it. Um, I don't think that's right. Um, I don't think the concept of earn is really relevant there. Um, you earn something when you put forth some effort. And as long as you put forth the effort, like Bill Gates, he puts forth the effort of creating Microsoft. And as a result of that, he, uh, he earns billions of dollars. And I think he, he rightfully deserves that. Even if he didn't earn his own brain, um, he didn't earn his super high intelligence. He was at Harvard. I guess he dropped out. But assuming that he had this extraordinarily high intelligence, that doesn't deprive him of the rights of uh, the applications of his intelligence. Uh, similarly with an athlete uh, like LeBron James, he might just be uh, genetically endowed with this very uh, favorable physical characteristics. He's very big, strong, and tall. And as a result of that, um, he can do very well in the uh, National Basketball Association. Of course, he had to put forth hard work too. It's not just his genetics. Um, so we could say he didn't earn his genetics. Nevertheless, uh, I, I think he, he has a right to the products of what he earns by his own efforts, using what, whatever he has genetically endowed. There's no role for um, redistributing, which I think is what Rawls is often used as a justification for redistributing the products of people's labor um, or their efforts because there was something in their history uh, that they didn't quote earn. So I think the point that Dr. Peikoff makes in his book, Opar, is that it's uh, twisting or distorting the concept earn to say someone didn't earn their own brain. Really, the concept of earn is inapplicable there. You neither earned it nor didn't earn it. It's just not an issue that's relevant in that context. Earn comes when there's a question of, do you have a choice to apply your, your free will, your effort to something or not? So um, there's a little of what I remember about some commentary on Rawls based on my little uh, acquaintance with him. And I refer you to uh, other objectivist literature if you want to know more about um, what some objectivists have said about Rawls. Okay, so, um, right, so uh, we'll officially end the session.